Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come together. We thank you for your word and what it teaches us. And we pray that as we come together to, to learn from your word, that you will speak to our hearts, that you'll strengthen us, that you'll remind us of your holiness, that you'll remind us of our desperate need for you, Lord, that we will turn to you and walk in your ways, and that we will live a life that is an example for others to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last week we looked at um, Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, where the preacher told us that we needed to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. This week he's continuing on in verses 5 to 9, and now... He's going to tell us between verses 5 and 18 um, of the incarnation of Christ. This is what the whole rest of the second chapter is about, is Christ coming as a human to earth. And this first set of verses is actually the incarnation, why the Father sent the Son. Next week we will look at the incarnation, why the Son came. So, starting at verse 5, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? or the Son of Man, that you are concerned about him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It's interesting to note that he has to get this far into the chapter are into the book before he actually says the name of Jesus. All the rest of the time he's talking about the Son, the God spoke through the Son. The Son of Man, as, as he's talking about there, throughout the first couple verses, or couple, our first chapter and, and so on, is referencing Jesus as that person that God spoke to us through. And now he gives him a name. His name is Jesus. What is really interesting, and something that as I started studying this and, and started looking at it, I, I, it became 
such an amazing thing to see how God knits the scriptures together. Um, R.C. Sproul, in, in a book that I have been reading, says that every point in the scripture touches on other points throughout the scripture. And here we see how the preacher ties verses together. Um, Hebrews 2.8 says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And it may look like he's going back to verse 13 in the first chapter. But this is not the case. In, the, in verse 13 in the first chapter, he's quoting Psalm 110. Talking about God inviting Jesus to sit at his right hand. Here, he's actually quoting from Psalm 8 which is why we read Psalm 8 this morning. So the preacher is using Psalm 110 and chapter 1 to show Christ's exaltation. Then in verse 8, he uses Psalm 8 to show the Father sent his Son in his incarnation. So in 110 we see his exaltation, and in 8 we see his incarnation. And by using this precise quote, in this passage, the preacher is making verses 1 to 4 a transition. And he's tying these two psalms together. That's the amazing thing. These two psalms are tied together in this also. So when the preacher is saying, we must pay attention to what was said in chapter 1, he is also saying, Listen up. I have more to say on the subject. Hebrews 2, 5 to 18, continues this theme by speaking to us about his son discussing his incarnation. The first section of Hebrews 2, 5 to 9, tells us why the Father sent the Son as a human. In Hebrews 2, 10 to 18, it tells why the Son came. I got a little ahead of myself earlier. <laughs> Hebrews 2.5 starts by saying this, For he did not subject the angels to the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. What he's talking about is government, or what's going on in the world. And here's the thing, God never intended or designed the world to be ruled by angels. That was never his intention. If we look at different passages in Scripture, though, we see that this is the case. That angels are, if you will, the powers of rulership. In Daniel 10, 12 and 13, it says, Then he said to me, Do not be afraid. This is the angel that came to Daniel to tell him what happened or what his dream was about. And he says, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So we see that 
there's this battle, this warfare going on that we don't see. And this battle and warfare is going on with the angels. And that they are desperately clinging to this world, trying to make it theirs. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul tells us, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Genesis 1.28 shows us God, God's intention for man to rule the earth was from the beginning. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was his intent. So what went so very wrong? If we look at Genesis 3, we see Adam sinned. See, God wanted us to be the custodians. But when Adam sinned, as a result, man became slave to sin. The big lie Satan told Adam that day was, make your own choice and you'll be your own man. Adam was already his own man. When he sinned, he became sin's slave. So now, as Satan rules the natural man's heart, he rules the kingdoms of this earth. It's not the natural order of things. It's not the way God created it, but it's the way Adam corrupted our system when he sinned. Is it any wonder we see pollution, famine, and war? The natural man is corrupted at the root. And it's important for us to understand, we are corrupted right at the root of who we are. Just like any plant that grows out of the ground and the root goes in, everything that is taken in through that root is what makes that plant what it is. But we are corrupted even at that, right, at that point so that there is absolutely nothing. Can you turn me down just a little bit, Alva? I'm hearing myself ring just a little. But at that point, at, at that, because of man being so corrupted at the root of who he is, everything he builds has the seed of destruction in it. If you look at nature, it's, it's amazing to think about this, but if you look at nature, I'm going off. <laughs> the closer you look at something God created, like you look at a tree, and you look all the way down to the cellular level, the more deeply you look into it, or at man, you study DNA, and the more you see that, the more you understand how fearfully and wonderfully we are made. The more beautiful God's creation is as we examine that. 
Take a look at this building. This is something man-made. It's falling apart around us, isn't it? And that's the way it is with everything man makes. It just falls apart. It needs to be kept up. That's because what man makes is corrupt in everything we do. We try to do the best we can, but it's still not good enough. It will never meet God's standards because we are corrupted. <clears throat> Hebrews 2.6 continues about how about it. And he says, But one has testified, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? And I am so thankful that God includes but in the Bible. I am a sinner, but God. I am totally without hope, but God. So here the preacher is, says, but God. And he looks back at Psalm 8. And I'm going to start a little bit before he begins his quote to add a little context. I want us to understand the wonder in David's heart as he wrote this psalm. So I'm going to look at Psalm 8, 3 and 4, and it says, When I consider your heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. So here we are. David is looking at the stars of the sky. And he's just overwhelmed with a sense of how vast God is. He's just awestruck. How vast God is and how insignificant he is. And he asked the question, what is man that you have taken thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? What's interesting is David is talking about mankind. He's talking about himself in particular, but mankind in general. And he's just so struck with how big God is and how little we are. And he's just saying, why? Why would you love me? Have you ever been overwhelmed with the sense of why would God love me? I know I have. In spite of all I've done to provoke God's anger, He still loves me. There can be no doubt that God loves us to a depth that we can't even begin to understand. When David wrote this, he was writing about God's love for mankind in general and his, himself in particular. But God uses this sense of it in awe in David to inspire him to write this psalm about how the, in the Father's vast love for mankind, he would send Jesus to become a man to rescue us from our sin. The way this passage is quoted in Hebrews makes it very clear. We must look at this, and this is a theological term, 
Christologically. It means the study of Christ. Like theology, Christology is the study of Christ, theology is the study of God. But we have to look at what David is saying as speaking about Christ and his incarnation. See, there are two parallel understandings here. David in his awe and what he's saying about himself and God's love for him, but also God inspiring him to prophesy about the coming of Christ and that Christ would come as a man. It's important for us to understand. That's what he's getting at here. In verses 7 and 8, we see a list of four things the father did in sending his son. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. For a short period of time, Jesus humbled himself and became a servant. Philippians 2, 6 to 8 says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. And being made in likeness of men, being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to earth as a human and lived as a servant, completely obedient to the Father. It's important to understand that Jesus, the human, was also Jesus the divine. Too many times we forget that. We look at Jesus when he came to the earth and think of him in terms of him as a human. And we need to be careful looking at Philippians 2, 2, where it says, Jesus emptied himself. I have heard it said that somehow Jesus set aside his divine attributes when he came to earth. In other words, when Jesus was on earth, he did not have his divine attributes. This could not be further from the truth. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God with all of his divine attributes. The original word translated emptied means he abased himself. It's not just humbled, it's abased. It means to put yourself face down, laying on the ground when you come to worship. And it says he abased himself. He made himself, if you will, a slave to the Father. Not exactly a slave, but it does say he took on the form of a slave. His incarnation, in his incarnation, Jesus never stopped being the divine, holy, infinite God. When Jesus abased himself and became a slave, he subjected his divine prerogative, that is what he has the right to, to make certain decisions as God. But he, does, he subjected this divine prerogative to be obedient to the Father. 
Jesus chose to do only what the Father gave him permission to do. We see Jesus exercising this prerogative when he turned the water into wine and not doing so when he refused to turn stones into bread. In both cases, Jesus was doing exactly what the Father told him to do. He was obedient to death, even death on the cross. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory as of the Holy One, begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt in this verse means to pitch a tent or to tabernacle. Remember Israel wandering in the desert? Everywhere they, took the taber- everywhere they went, they took the tabernacle with them. That's because the tabernacle was where God manifests his presence. Could that tent hold all of an infinite God? Certainly not. But the tent was where they could go and know they were in God's presence. Jesus, the Son of Man, is the one who came down to live among us so we could have a meaningful understanding and relationship with an infinite God. There's no way we could even comprehend who God is in his infinite existence. Jesus came to bridge that gap so that we can understand, so that we have something that we can know. This is God, and I can go to him, and I can talk to him. So we see, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. This crown mentioned here in verse 9 is not a king's crown, but a victor's crown. The specific word for crown in this passage is used only in one, one other place other than in Hebrews, because it does use it in 7 and 9. But the other place is in 2 Timothy 2.5, where, where Paul says, If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The word prize is crown, the victor's crown. So Jesus has been crowned with the victor's crown of glory and honor. The Greek word for glory is Doxa, or doxa, which is where we get the word doxology from. I'm sure everyone will remember the common doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Operative word there, praise. In Hebrew, The word for glory is kabold, which means heaviness. In other words, glory is that which has preeminent substance. 
This crown of glory means that Jesus has been crowned with a weight of importance that is uniquely his. He is the most important. When we talk about the glory of Christ, that's what it's saying. He is so substantially. I'm sure you've heard of people saying, talking about discussing heavy matters or heavy issues. That's really the kind of thing that's talking about is important things. Jesus is important. He is uniquely important and he is more important than anything. So when he's crowned with the victor's crown of glory, he, it's saying here that he is the most important. Pay attention to him. That's what we need to pay attention to. The crown is a crown of glory and honor. And the word for honor carries with it the idea of price or value. The secular world would like to hide the importance of Christ's incarnation by changing our calendars from A.D., Anno Domine, in the year of our Lord, to C.E., Common Era. This is laughable. When does the common era start? When Jesus came. So every time somebody puts a date in a calendar, celebrates a birthday, writes a check, sets up an appointment, they're acknowledging how important Jesus was to the history of mankind. No matter how they name it. Because he is the one if you will, God put a cross in the ground and said, everything changes here. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. Here we see Jesus is restoring the world to its rightful order. Remember in Genesis 1:28, God created man to rule the earth, and man's enslavement to sin put that in Satan's hand. Jesus, by his victory on the cross, has taken back this responsibility. So you've made him for a little while lower than the angels, and this bears repeating. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands, and you have put all things in subjection under his feet. In Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, we've looked at this in the past, but I'm going to read it. Paul prays that we might understand God's power, starting with verse 20, which he wrought, which he brought about in Christ Jesus, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him 
who fills all in all. When the preacher quotes Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, we see this subjugation is to happen in the future. Then he quotes Psalm 8.8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. This says it's an accomplished fact. So which one is it? The question is, the victory something that happened or something for the future? The preacher answers this by saying, both are true. In verses 2, 8, and 9, he clarifies this conundrum by saying this, in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Sounds an awful lot like Ephesians. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. So he's saying, wait a minute, now we don't see this happening. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. When Jesus tasted death for us, he won the victory over sin. When we see the risen Savior, we know that we no longer need to fear death. Jesus is this promise of our hope for the future and final victory. That's why he says, but we now see him. He is that hope. There will be no suffering and sin. And he is the victory that frees us from this slavery to sin. So why did the Father send the Son? The answer is to win a complete victory over sin. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, there was nothing left to do. It was all done. The victory was complete. The preacher wrote in the book of, wrote the book of Hebrews to encourage us to perseverance. It's one of his primary reasons for writing this. And remember, I'm referring to him as the preacher because he wrote this as a sermon, not as a letter. We don't know his name, so I'm just going to say the preacher. That's the way the author of the commentary refers to him a lot, too. But as we behold Jesus with the victor's crown, we should be encouraged to persevere. Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians about their perseverance. Pay careful attention to the prayer at the end. And that's also why I have that passage in 2 Thessalonians on the back of the handout. Take that home and read it. Starting verse 3, going through 12, it says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting because of your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore we ask ourselves, therefore we ourselves speak 
proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions, which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. I'll tell you, I would not want to be one of those who afflicted them. They're putting themselves, if you will, as a target. Starting again at verse 7. To give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's talking about his return there. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at, among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. To this end we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do have such great plans for us. That in being glorified, you are also going to glorify the saints with you. We thank you for your great love for us in that when we were helpless and without any ability to save ourselves, you came and you won the victory. You lived the perfect life. You did it all for us, that we might trust in you and turn to you, and in so doing, win the victory with you. We pray that you'll help us to walk in this victory every day, that you'll help us to keep looking at the author and finisher of our faith, that we might be an example for others, that we might tell others of their need for you in a way that they understand and that it might turn them to you also. In Jesus' name, amen.